you will not be able to really do value-based care without integrating substance use and mental health into one umbrella. Workforce shortages, payment issues, and other challenges to mental health. Today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. It's November 8th, the first day of our first live annual conference since 2019. If you're listening en route to Minneapolis, hello. Grab some airline pretzels, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview. I'm talking with Dr. Ranga Krishnan from Rush University System for Health about the challenges in mental health today. But first, as always, we're going beyond the news with Senior Editor Nick Hutt and Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey everyone, this is Nick Hutt. In this episode, Sean and I are discussing news that broke over the last couple of weeks regarding federal value-based payment models. CMS published a white paper detailing how it will quote unquote refresh its strategy for putting out value-based models through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Sean, what was a big takeaway for you from this announcement in terms of how it reflects on the state of value-based payment? Yeah, I believe that the impacts of COVID-19 are really prevalent in, in their announcement. It seems like COVID-19 has not only given frontline healthcare workers and leadership important insights into the fault and weaknesses of the healthcare system, but it's also shed a lot of light on many facets of public health, healthcare policy, and value-based demonstrations that need to be refocused to achieve higher quality, more affordable, and patient-centered care. So CMMI appears to be focusing on those lessons learned from the last two years to help direct their new model portfolio towards a clearer focus on quality, more affordable, and more patient-centered care. Absolutely. And that emphasis on affordability that you just mentioned is key because no longer will criteria for launching new models be strictly whether they'll save money for Medicare. There also will need to be provisions that bring down the price tag of care for beneficiaries. And then how do you see the landscape of value-based payment models changing over the next few years in terms of the portfolio of models? So I think it's very exciting to hear that the Innovation Center reported only six out of the 50 models that were previously launched had generated significant savings to Medicare, and that only four of those meet the requirements to be expanded in duration and scope. So it seems as though the sobering data will assist CMMI with the refresh of their models to help assure they will be more thoughtful in regards to, you know, things like health equity, reducing unnecessary complexity and overlap between the models, and then provide better and more complete tools to help providers navigate and assume financial risks, building on a broader provider participation, create simpler financial benchmarks that will hopefully create lasting care delivery transformation. Great insights. And and another big headline to me was that CMS is projecting that all Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries and the vast majority of Medicaid beneficiaries will be in accountable care models by the year 2030. Now, whether they deliver on that remains to be seen, but certainly providers should be ready for a scenario in which the lion's share of their government payments are risk-based to some degree. And you mentioned the greater level of support for providers. That may go hand-in-hand with what's likely to be a greater focus on mandatory models, but at least resources will be available for providers who have fewer resources and therefore might be expected to struggle initially in those models. John, what do you think this says about kind of the current state of CMMI? 
I'm very interested to see what happens with these promises. I mean, for me, the most exciting commitment from CMMI is they intend to involve more health plans and payers in the buy-in process, hoping to transport value-based care over a broader healthcare continuum and not just focusing on fee-for-service. All right. Well, thanks for that, Sean. Certainly, this bears watching over the next few months as CMS starts to roll out some of these new models. And as always, you can find coverage of this topic and all other hot button topics in healthcare finance at hfma.org slash news. In an episode that was released earlier this year, I interviewed Dr. Ranga Krishnan, professor of psychiatry and the CEO of Rush University System for Health. We talked about mental health and self-care during the pandemic. Today, I have Dr. Krishnan back on the podcast, this time talking about the attention being paid to mental health, the challenges in the healthcare industry, and what he sees as the way forward. A quick editorial note here. I recorded this interview around the same time as the one with Joyce Fitzpatrick and Robin Begley, the two nursing leaders I spoke with in the September 27th episode. You'll hear me mention a study I also discussed with them, and even though it focused on nurses rather than mental health professionals, the challenges are similar. So if you haven't heard that episode, I highly recommend listening. Here's my conversation with Dr. Krishnan. The pandemic cast a new light on mental health. It feels like the stigma against seeking help could be lifting a bit, but there are issues with access, particularly in rural areas where it's more difficult to attract talent. So what do you see as the key challenges around mental health at this point in time? You can actually boil it down to a few things that are key challenges. But if you think about it, the pandemic made it more evident how fragile our entire system is for mental health care. And also equally important, we uh, need to think a lot more about it, the substance use care and opioid use. So after you come out or slowly coming out of a pandemic, all the effects of the pandemic on mental health become more evident. So people are staying at home more, people get more depressed, people get more upset, they're more anxious. All the things that they could do outside is reduced. So mental health problems increase when you go through a pandemic and actually after you come out of a pandemic. At any one time, it could be as much as 8 to 9% of people have a problem with substance use, meaning either alcohol and nowadays opioids, or some about uh, 10 to 18%, depending upon the location in the age group could have a mental health problem, most commonly anxiety problem and or depression. So just the raw numbers are huge. And if you look at disability, four out of five sources of disability in the 18 to 44 group is due to behavioral health, alcohol, depression, anxiety, being three of the top ones. So very, very common. So if you think of those raw numbers, we just don't have the capacity to manage them. That is, there is a massive shortage of the workforce. So was that workforce shortage going to change? If you actually think through the numbers, there is no way we can deliver all the treatment that is needed if we're going to deliver it the same way we've always done. In other words, it's unlikely we can ever completely reduce 
the workforce shortage. In other words, the workforce shortage is going to remain. So the main question is, what do you do when there is a workforce shortage? So the biggest barrier is the workforce shortage. The second barrier also has to do with how we pay people who provide care. Uh, so the provider system for paying, I mean, the payer system that uh, pays for mental health care is separated away from what you do for the medical care. And the system for paying for substance abuse is separated from mental health. So in other words, you've got three payer system, but you have one individual who's gonna need all three at some point. So when you have it that way, the silos make it very difficult to provide the right treatment for the individual because the payment systems have never been adapted to the reality of what the world is for somebody with the mental health problem. And even worse, when they have a mental health problem and a substance use problem, and even more worse, when they also got a medical problem. How much does it cost us by keeping things separate and not properly treating mental health problem and substance use problem in people who have coexisting medical problems? The number in 2012, obviously it's a lot more now, is almost $300 billion, and that's with a B. Very, very big problem. And so unless we address some of the payment system issues, that part of the problem is not going to go away. So I think those factors make this whole thing much more challenging. And equally important to keep in mind as we go through how to face the challenges is how do you properly use technology? So when we went through the COVID crisis last year and are going through in different parts of the country now, the ability to see people in a clinic or live became problematic. So telehealth came into being. Even though telehealth has been around for a long time, the payment system never caught up with how to deliver healthcare through telehealth and became a problem. It got better during COVID in terms of having better payment for the treatment. And now it is a little bit more fragmented again because not all payment systems cover the cost of providing telehealth. So telehealth is a solution, technology solution that improves access because now somebody could potentially treat somebody from another location. However, payments still need to be properly uh, constructed to provide that. But even if you have telehealth, it doesn't alleviate the big problem of shortage. If you don't have the people to provide that telehealth care, then how are you going to provide telehealth even if you have a platform to deliver it? And you're seeing it. So in the outpatient arena, it is almost impossible to provide, given the resource constraints we talked about, treatment for all the patients that have a problem. So the question is, can you take existing structures and provide the treatment that you get? And an approach that has been gradually developed and now becoming more available is called collaborative care. Collaborative care is a primary care doctor treating the patient has the ability to collaborate or work with, let's say a psychologist, a social worker, a psychiatrist as appropriate to be the, fulcrum to be the point at which you can deliver the care, but you have all the resources to help you manage the patient through a collaboration rather than having to send and find a, find a specialist for each patient. You just will not be able to do it. So collaborative care 
is a model that will work. A third thing that you're seeing experimentally being developed and gradually applied is the use of cognitive and other types of psychotherapy online. I'm not talking about telehealth, but actually providing it where the person themselves can go on and get self-help through these modalities. A newer form is the development of games and games that somebody can play on, but when they're playing the game, it's actually helping them learn how to overcome the issues they're dealing with, whether you're afraid or anxious or whether you're depressed or down. So these things are gradually coming into being, but they're not gonna work by themselves. They all have to be put into the context of how you manage a patient through a long term. And this is where what we call as a tiered approach will have to be developed. Tiered approach means upfront, you can provide simple things that people can do on their own by teaching them how to do it. And that, for example, cognitive therapy online or games, and when they do it and they get better, then they don't need to go to the next tier or next level up. In the next level up, it is possible what is needed could be done through telehealth where you don't have to have the doctor or the psychologist or the social work right in the same town, the same city, but they could be in the same state and provide that. Ideally, it'll be good if this can cross state lines. Obviously, there are significant difficulties with finding enough people with licenses that cross state lines. An issue that is self-created and can be addressed, but right now it's not fully addressed. That's an option. The third would be those who need beyond those two initial options, meaning self-help or getting telehealth, and then they have to come in. And that really, we do have to figure out a way, way to train more people, figure out the way to get the, say, the right person for the right treatment. If somebody needs psychotherapy, they don't necessarily need to go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, social worker, counselor could help depending on the problem. Figuring out a system that gets the person to the right person at the right place at the right time is the third level. The fourth level would be getting them into what's called intensive outpatient programs. This is particularly true for those who are significantly or severely ill and where you can manage a lot of this, even pretty difficult illness through intensive outpatient programs and more of them are being created. And again, there are funding constraints on how it works. Again, a solvable problem if we look at it as $1 rather than three separate dollars that have to be managed separately, we are making it better for $1, but you make it worse for the patient and actually it costs you even more when you split it up. That's a problem that has to be solved, the payer system. And I'm optimistic it'll get solved because if we actually talk about value-based care, you will not be able to really do value-based care without integrating substance use and mental health into one umbrella. A crisis sometimes is good because a crisis makes you think more clearly and come up with solutions. Rather than more of the same, we have to rearrange the deck to provide better for less. And I think it is doable by building a tier system and by building, by getting the right patient to the right place at the right treatment at the right time. All doable. And I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to do it. I was reading yesterday for a different episode that I'm recording. There, there's been some discussion and some maybe fear that that the pandemic is driving nurses out of the profession. 
And data actually shows that in 2020, enrollment in or application to nursing programs went up. I'm wondering if there might be some opportunity here for people who are looking at a career in mental health or maybe who are seeing what's happening right now and inspired to go into a career in mental health. I think you are going to see that more people interested in healthcare, particularly in some of these professions, uh, nursing, psychology, but we also got a shortage in not having enough training programs and getting into good programs that can train you is a shortage. So you're beginning to see health systems, even the ones that are for-profit, trying to build their own platforms for nursing, trying to build their own platforms even for residency training. And the reason is everyone can see what's going on. There is a shortage. It's going to take us some time to backfill. There is a lot of interest, but we didn't build pipelines to have enough people coming in. So if you look at people who are in healthcare profession, and I know a little bit more on the physician side, good 25 to 30% of people are in the 60 plus age group. They're going to retire. And unless we have a pipeline coming in, it's going to be a problem. We knew this for a long time, but we have not systematically addressed it because the number of slots, even for residency, has never really increased very much in 30 years, whereas the population has aged and we need more. Uh, so at some point, the, the thing with it is a crisis is when people try to build solutions, but all of this should was expected. We knew we were running into this, but we didn't build the pipelines. And we had to figure out ways. So let's say you want to go to nursing college or medical college, you have to take a loan, often to pay for it. So you, if you take a place like Rush and you take a look at employee, how much loans they have for student loans, they're staggering sums. So we have to figure out ways to reduce the cost of training, to help pay for the training, to get people in, and to build the platforms to get people who are truly interested an opportunity to come in. I think it's less about people wanting to do it and more about having the opportunity to do it. And that's the part that we have to really spend time creating. And I think you're gonna see it because every health system that I talk to is facing the same problem. And if you do, you're gonna come up with a solution which will come and say, yeah, maybe we have to open our own nursing program, our own allied health program, so that we can train them for what we need. And then you'll come up with a way to fix the cost structure because if you need them and you don't need to have them pay for it to work for you. So there may be ways to solve it. Dr. Krishnan, thank you so much for coming back and joining me again. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. And you have a very good day. Thanks. Before we end this episode, I wanted to bring in one of our editors to discuss his recent piece in HFM Magazine. Welcome, Eric Reese. Hi, Erica. It's great to be back on the podcast again. Happy to have you here. So you wrote the cover story on Hospital at Home for the November issue of HFM. I've noticed, and I'm curious whether you've had this experience too, that most of the time when I bring up healthcare at home to people, they immediately jump to telehealth but hospital at home is different and it's a lot more involved. So tell us a little bit about what you learned in researching the story. 
Telehealth is a component of the hospital at home care, but, you know, obviously it's hospital at home. So there's also an all important in-person aspect to the model. And I think that's the real difference right there. You have actually clinicians coming into the patient's home. It got a big push from CMS in response to the pandemic. Obviously, there was clearly a benefit to be gained from keeping people out of the hospital. And so CMS created the acute hospital care at home waiver in November 2020. And that enables individual hospitals and health systems to apply and deliver care in patients' home at the same price, basically. In other words, CMS pays the same amount that they would for inpatient care. And, and hence, that's why the, uh, the waiver, you know, you have to be able to qualify for that payment benefit. And you have to show that you actually are likely, A, to have the right kind of patients for it, and B, have the capability to deliver that type of care. So it's taken off. There are now more than 175 hospitals participating in the program as of October 18th. So for the article, I, I talked with Dr. Linda DeCherry, who's a clinical director at Mount Sinai at home. That's part of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. And I spoke with Michael Dalton, who's vice president of virtual care enterprise at Metro Health System in Cleveland. And they're both leaders of hospital at home programs in their organizations. And one thing they have in common is they're both super excited about the program and its potential. They really believe that the model is here to stay. It actually expands the reach of the hospital into patients' homes at a time, you know, when actually it's beneficial for hospitals to sort of expand their reach in that way. I just wanted to give you a quick rundown from the cherry on sort of the components of the program. When a patient goes home, what happens, right? So they go home with a telehealth kit, okay? And that has like a iPad type thing, a blood pressure cuff, you know, just all sorts of paraphernalia that they're gonna need. And they receive training from a nurse on using the technology. And usually that begins while they're still in the hospital. Then they have to have two nursing visits a day per state regulations, at least for the Cherry's organization. And those nursing visits can be from a paramedic. They also have to have one provider visit per day. About half of those are virtual, but half are in-person. And then they've got a phlebotomist, a physical therapist that can come into the house. A social worker is available coming into the house. And the program has to be available 24-7, where it can send out a paramedic anytime to see a patient. And then the paramedic has a video encounter with the, the physician who's online, and, and they talk about what's needed. So hope that helps. I think that's worth mentioning. You know, as we mentioned at the beginning, telehealth is kind of the thing that people think of when they think about being home for care. But this is a whole lot more involved. And I think kind of talking through some of what it entails paints a, paints a picture. If listeners want to check out this story, it's in the November issue of HFM, available now at hfma.org or in your mailbox if you're an HFMA member. Thank you, Eric, for joining me today. Thanks, Erica. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. 
Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you're listening to this episode on the way to the annual conference, come say hello, I'll be there. Otherwise, let's chat the old-fashioned way. You can email our team anytime at podcast at hfma.org. Good morning, Minneapolis.